pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. I have the great, great opportunity to talk to physician Michel Tagliati. Actually, it was a kind of coincidence that we got in touch because I have LinkedIn and I started to see what he has been writing. And uh, just to take uh, a few examples, Michel has talked about false cardiac failure lab tests, uh, a study uh, on atrial flutter, uh, missed diabetic patients in primary care, how to formulate hypotheses in research, the importance of not keeping overweight, sharing an overview over the classical philosophers, a reflection of the Swedish healthcare system, why fear dominates our behavior, how to keep your trust in healthcare, uh, about children not being a possession but something you borrow in life. Well, the listener can understand why this is a very, very interesting person. And I have no idea where this uh, talk will lead, but it will probably be something very interesting. So, Michel, tell us who are you, really? Oh, uh, thank you, Karsten. I, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you like this. Most of us sit in a very busy clinical everyday environment. With that in regards, I think it's great that we can have an opportunity to actually speak with each other. I appreciate that you took the time. I think when the first time you and I started chatting on LinkedIn, it was more of an existential question regarding parenthood, I believe. It probably was. Yeah. I've been listening a lot to the discussion in media lately about different interests group and I've been reflecting a lot about the rhetoric in society and our use and how we speak about the subjects and what is the purpose with the dialogues that we have. And as you know, Sweden hasn't been part of a, of a conflict, officially speaking, for over 200 years. And the cultural climate here is, it's very important to agree. We have to agree about what we are talking about. At least that's my impression. Some, sometimes you hear, uh, actually, maybe the older generation that say that we really need a war because people are spoiled, they don't understand things. Now, that's a terrible thing to say, but is there a truth in that? Has the peace for 200 years changed us in a way that's not uh, top-notch? What do you think? I've been listening to modern philosophers about the discrepancy between rights and uh, responsibilities. And, and I think that's something that touches the string with me. Listen to this. Most of us are very preoccupied with our rights and, and not so much aware about our responsibilities. It was on that regard I was reflecting on issues of parenthood and stereotypic perspectives, how the standard family structure looked like after the Second World War and during the 70s, 
when Sweden had a very high growth rate, the family structure changed with daycare and women had the opportunity to make a career and to, to start competing in, in the working environment on similar terms. It, it changes a lot. And the subject of, of parenthood is a very charged one. And, and for, for many people, we touch a lot of stereotypic expectations, what we mean when we say mother or father or parent. And uh, it's interesting to listen to people, how they describe their parenthood. Many people speak about my children, but they are not yours. Our children is a more correct term to describe it, at least in a biological context. But, but I think my wife says that our yeah. children are 51% hers and 49 mine. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that's at least far away from the singular perspective. I, <laughs> it can be quite charged. I saw this big Pieta statue that Michelangelo made with the dying Jesus in the arms of Maria. And, and the, this representation, what actually happens is that the woman looks for the secure environment where she can actually find a partner that she can trust who will look after her when she becomes pregnant and who will support her when she has this vulnerable infant for at least two years minimum where there's a great vulnerability as a mother. After that, when the child grows up, the cutting of the umbilical cord in a physical sense and then a philosophical sense which actually means that you have to let your children go out, adult in the world, and manage on their own. And I think there's a lot of uh, discrepancy in our society where if your child can manage to do something by themselves, let them do it by themselves. Don't do it for them. Because you know this from healthcare when we have the patients who are fragile or in, in recovery, that if you over-treat their condition, they become more patient and, and their healthy drive disappears and they stay in their bed. They should be immobilized. If they're able to walk to the toilet, let them walk to the toilet, just to take a brute example. And I, I think in, in, in life, this is something that we forget that our children, if they are able to do something, let them do it and see that they are able to, because this is something that becomes quite malignant. If I take care of everything for you, then what kind of a parent am I? Mm. And that's a very touchy subject, of course. To... Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm not saying that I have the answers and I'm not saying that I should judge other people's parenthood. But I think from a philosophical perspective, I think it's the responsibility to ask the question. Uh, and with, I think it was 10,000 people who, who reacted to this short tidbits obviously it was a sensitive topic that's the same with uh, uh, pain treatment since the pod is called uh, outsmart the pain i should uh, drop in some pain line here <laughs> and it's yeah. actually the same thing there that some people think that the healthcare should take care of them make the pain go away but it's actually a job they need to do themselves but they will succeed with help from healthcare of course but looking again at the parenthood we have two um, different sides where one is that you really need your children to do stuff by themselves to learn 
But on the other hand, we have people saying that the way society looks with all the psychological illnesses and the violence is because mm. parents don't care about their children. Uh, they don't feel support from childhood and so on. What, what are your thoughts on mm. that? When I was reflecting on this with the matriarch and the vulnerability as a woman to actually take the risk to become pregnant and to bring children into this world and the, the need for security that implies. I asked some of my patients when I was working regarding these things when it was appropriate and I came to the insight that many women have a tremendous burden to prepare for this. It, it starts very early. As soon as they realize that they have the ability to actually give new life, so to speak, it's a very big responsibility to carry. Whereas many men don't walk around and for 10 years and think about how to become a father or when that will happen. Pain in parenthood or pain in, in an existential context it is painful to receive criticism for something as your parenthood. It can be very painful. It's painful to discuss and confront yourself with what kind of values you have. And we are so preoccupied in our society today with labeling people and to look for ideologies that we agree with or disagree with and to generate uh, antagonism that you are right and I am left or uh, you are pro and I am ag against. I just think we should actually try to appreciate that we have different opinions um, because if we don't do that we, we will not have a conversation that will uh, generate anything constructive. This too much focus in society to discuss things with those who have the similar opinion as yourself. For instance, I sit in general healthcare and I meet people who come to me with all kinds of, of pain problems. They are an unselected patient population. They can be six months old or 95, and they have all possible reasons for their pain. And the most common denominator when I meet patients who have pain is that I sit there and I find myself thinking all the time about what are there, if any, secondary gains from being in this situation for this patient? Are they conscious? Are they subconscious? Are there any secondary benefits of being in this role as a patient? If I have pain, I cannot do my job. If I can't do my job, I can be at home. If I can be at home, I have more opportunity to to take care of, of things in the family which I'm not able to get done otherwise. And, and, and these sound maybe a bit cynical, but, and I wouldn't say that this is common practice at all. Most people are very diligent and want to do their job well, but a small proportion of patients have this dilemma subconsciously. They can't make things work, and they, the time is not enough. And they live with a tremendous stress to make things go around. And they eventually generate symptoms, somatic symptoms. Their body tells them, you know, you can't keep doing this. It's not working. 
Uh, and uh, it's interest to me. So it's not something that I'm cynical and, and irritated about because it, it's easy to help them. If I have those patients, they come, they usually have a pretty long medical history of, of pain that is moving around in, in their body and no one has been able to tell them that this is rheumatic or this is orthopedic or this is post-herpatic or infection or whatever. They, they have no label on their pain and they're wandering around from clinic to clinic, from doctor to doctor, and their medical uh, prescriptions are just a disaster. And when you ask them, when did this start? And they look at you like no one has asked this. And you ask, when was the last time that you were healthy and didn't have any problems? Many, many times it takes about 30 minutes of honest, interpersonal, respectful conversation. And people start to cry and they've gone through all kinds of challenges in life, I find. If I give them the time to actually speak about how it was before all this happened. And... Uh, that takes at least an hour and two, three consultations before you can actually start doing anything constructive. And it's quite a burden. But for, for, for the individual who comes with all these trauma doll prescriptions where there is no arthrosis and who have uh, developed an addiction and fallen out of employment, it's, it's uh, very important to actually stand up and, and do what you are supposed to do as a doctor. Hmm. Well, well, that's uh, quite impressive to hear that you are doing the things that I actually want uh, the healthcare to do in the book I've written. It's actually yeah. trying to find the innermost thoughts of people they want to regain. And actually, we had a pod with Pete Moore, who has had pain for over 25 years. And although it was just uh, a second part of a sentence, he said that, in healthcare, you need to know that patients have their own agenda. And that's exactly what you're saying. Uh, and it's neither being cynical or saying that it was wrong or right. But like you say, if you feel that you don't have time and when you're on sick leave, you do have time with something, of course you want to prioritize that. If you can't take care of your children instead of, of having pain working, I know what I would have chosen. No, no problem. <laughs> so, but you need to find those parts to be able to help or make the person help themselves. So about 40% of, of patients in general medicine have some kind of psychiatric, uh, uh, maybe not the chief complaint, but at, in relation to their visit at the doctor. And it can be everything from sleeping disorders to anxiety, depression, drug abuse, stress-related uh, problems. So it's every other patient over and over and over and over again. And I did the math very roughly recently. I think I met over a hundred thousand patients for in the last 20 years. Hmm. What has stuck with me most is that every time I stop caring about what the clock is and I transfer that sensation that I'm actually interested in what you have to say, and I have time for that. And now that sounds like every patient needs an hour, but it's really not—it's really not about the time you put aside. It's about how you dispose the time you have. If you do this and ask honestly that you're really interested in the answer to be able to help, people start telling you all kinds of, of challenges they've been gone through, and 
once they're done, it's really not that strange at all that they have the problems they have. I had one woman coming in to me with her arm, exactly as it sounds like, or even more, I think her arm came in with her. <laughs> and I just sat there because this, this body language was so overwhelming, like what's going on here? Because she looked kind of healthy. She didn't have a huge medical record. And, and she was basically, her arm came in with her. Hello, this is me. After 30 minutes of conversation, she had so much problems in her life. And this thing with her arm, she perceived that she could actually do something about this. But everything else in her life was completely impossible to have some kind of idea about how it would turn out or that it would make any difference whatsoever if she did either this or that. So this I've seen in other patients too, that sometimes it's a somatization or a psychiatric context that, you know, I really need to talk. I don't have the tools for this. Uh, no one has ever taught me to speak about how I feel. No one has ever listened. I haven't even tried to say, I don't know how to do this. They sort of come like a cola bottle, which dropped on the floor and you just have to turn the cork and, and everything just fills the whole room. And the prognosis for those people are very good, but you have to have the courage to act mm. and you have to be strong and stand there. I, I see you. I want to hear what's wrong. Really. You haven't had this elbow problem the whole life. I learned this when I was in, in medical school in Hungary, we had professors and oral exams. You had to put on your suit. Everybody was completely scared up because the professor had complete authority. And if he had a bad day, you were out. And you could end your whole career. It was a total nightmare, but we had huge respect for them. And they taught us every day and they knew their subject inside out. I studied there for two years and, and they taught me something. You have to ask why five times and it moves the, the narrative ahead. You know, most of the time after five whys, you get the answer. It's very interesting because it sounds like you're going to have to spend, you know, an hour with a patient to find out the start of, of unraveling their history, but it's really not as overwhelming. It usually takes 35 to 40 minutes to get to the point where we agree that this is the bigger problem we can meet again, but you don't need these x-rays. You don't need these uh, medications right now, at least. I had a musician in Göteborg who came to me. He had several hundred milligrams of tramadol. He was sleeping all day long. He was completely lethargic and uninterested in anything that had to do with an ordinary life. And this started somewhere with anxiety and he got tramadol and then his life was destroyed. It's really terrible. It took me a year to get him off these drugs and to help him out of his depression. But it's just illustrate what a big responsibility you have when people come with their problems. On a practical note, I think that people with pain who are listening are thinking, well, I only get 15 minutes at my GP. And the GP who is listening mm. saying, oh, yeah, sure, come on, I don't have time for this. But mm -hmm. you say that you are able to have multiple sessions, the patient comes back and you can continue on your quest. Mm. Is that how we should do it practically? Do you think our health system can take care of these patients? I've wrestled with this 
question because I have a soft spot for people who are in a tough spot who can't really speak up for themselves. So I, I always have. Uh, it started when I was in the emergency and I saw these al people with al uh, alcohol dependency lying the ward waiting to be treated. There are 200 phone calls in a regular Monday on a normal size general healthcare center uh, with 10,000 patients listed in Sweden. They have about 200 phone calls on a Monday and everybody wants to see the doctor. And there is no way you can give 200 people access to a physician every day in general healthcare. The distribution of high consumers in terms of, of doctor appointments is about 20% of the patients that consume 80% of the resource. What? 20% of the patients that consume 80% of the resource. Unfortunately, many clinics are not prepared to make this assessment. I need this kind of algorithm, and then they will stop calling your nurses every morning. And they won't be here every week because they have a doctor who is responsible who, when they leave, they have an appointment about when will I see you again? And what should I do until then? Uh, so you start to establish a certain kind of order in all their chaos. You fix their uh, complicated relationship with the with the Försäkringskassan, on the the assurance agency regarding their their financial situation. Usually they have you know there's four weeks and then they have no idea about what's going to happen with their income and then there's four weeks with a new doctor and a new paper and they have no idea what's going to happen with their income. And if you're not sick when you start being ill, you're gonna get sick because you know, your financial situations becomes insecure. You have different doctors every time you come to the general's doctor's office and your uh, medical uh, certificates regarding your inability to work look very different. And some months you might not get your financial support and some months you will. I realized that it takes at least three visits and it takes contingency that, you know, I will take care of this. You will meet me again. We will speak again in about four to six weeks. And this is what we will do until then. So I have an algorithm where they actually use less healthcare when they are with me than they did before they came to me. And, and this, any colleague can do this. This is not the personal touch. It's just basic logic. Uh, you're actually touching on uh, a sentence in the book also because I, I write that you shouldn't leave your doctor and you kind of say, well, let's let's meet in, in four weeks and see what's happened. Uh, but you could actually say that we'll meet again in six weeks and during that time I, the doctor, will, I don't know, look through the, the x-rays and see if there was something that we need to go uh, forward with. And during that time you will try to ride your bike ten minutes a day and then you come back. Mm -hmm. So you have something that you will actually do during the time because, like you say, waiting four or six weeks, no one gets better by that, do they? If anything today, we make these people sick. It might sound like I think this patient group is very uh, cumbersome, but I don't. I, I had a tutor when I was in Norrköping who taught me. And at first I thought he was giving me a hard time. But I realized that if I'm very good in things that happen over and over and over again, they actually use less healthcare. I mean, we can all relate to certain kinds of tasks in our employment or in our everyday life that 
we really would like to give to someone else rather than to do ourselves. But we have to do them. And, and if you see that this is the one task that I really have to struggle with. Now there's a patient here again with pain who has a sick leave, who has no diagnosis, and I have to fix all of this. So you have to have an algorithm that you can do this with a great responsibility. And, and over the years, I, I chose to work in general medicine because I, I really couldn't uh, find my place in the hospital and working these shifts and taking care of my health. So I bailed out from that, even I find it very interesting and I learned a lot in the hospital. But working from eight to five, I got another load, which was these patients who no one took care of. And they came every week, all the time, everywhere. <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, and so, so, so this is my algorithm. I, I ask them, when were you healthy? And I put up a schedule of about three appointments. I really make a, a deep history regarding their psychiatric status. And uh, I would say eight, nine out of 10 times, that's where the problem is. Not all the time, but many times. And if it's not the main problem, it's a big, because if you live with chronic pain, as you know, many pa patients develop uh, secondary psychiatric symptoms with agitation, sleep disturbances, and, and their everyday life doesn't work. Their relationship doesn't work. They have pain all the time and they become socially avoidant. I mean, you speak about this in your book. I think the way we treat psychiatric uh, symptoms could be so much better with very, very few simple questions. I mean, have you had depression before? Do you have any hereditary load for psychiatric illness in terms of anxiety, depression, dependency on alcohol? Or do, have you have been through any traumatic events in your life? How, how did you grow up, basically? And, and if you ask these things, people will acknowledge that this is not the first time I feel like this. It has happened before. And when we find out that they have uh, depression or we think that they have that, we usually have too much in a rush. So we start tr treating them with antidepressants. The first visit they have, they don't even get a chance to come back two weeks later and think about things. And, and then they get more pressure because now the doctor expects me to do what he told me. There's no cooperation. It's just more pressure. And there's no blood tests and there's no differential diagnosis. It's, everything is so speeded. And, and, and then this patient who, who felt a little bit sick starts to take antidepressants, usually in a too high dose to start with, starts to oscillating in their mood, starts to wake up at night and all kinds of side effects and feel 10 times worse than they actually did before they came to the doctor and end up going to the system belong and buying alcohol and never visiting healthcare again and, and all hell breaks loose worst case scenario because it becomes not a support but now the healthcare expects me to do this listen to this the right way would be to to start educating patients about you're not alone there's so many other people who have these similar symptoms, several patients a week come to me with this and, and describe what different medications actually do so they understand that. I mean, how many hypertensive patients have you met who can actually say that they understand why they get blood medi pressure medication, why they're taking their pills? They don't even know what the pill's called. 
<laughs> no, yeah, my, my wife takes care of that. Sometimes you get flying thoughts, and uh, right now my thought is... Is it with Norrköping? I really must tell you that I have had three guests. <laughs> I had uh, <laughs> e Elin Rombo, world well-known opera singer, who kind of changed her life into music when she came to Norrköping. I have talked to Johan Dahlene, virtuosis uh, playing on a 300-year-old Stradivarius, 21 years old. Where did he come from? Hmm? Norrköping. And now you talk <laughs> about Norrköping. I think I need to do an episode <laughs> about that town. So anyone from Norrköping, head of uh, <laughs> the uh, town, uh, call me and we'll talk about your town. I thought, coming back to the uh, philosophers, I've always thought that back in the time the, the old Greeks had a lot of time to think about mm. life and, and everything. Now it seems like we have no time. And you have actually been able to think about all these things. Do you think that society has too little time to, to dwell on important things? Or are there people who will always think about philosophy and, and move the society forward in that sense? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think every parent with a child who has a mobile phone reflects on where our attention span is directed and what the consequences. Our techies that work in social media sector, uh, they basically avoid uh, all these social platforms for their children. I think the most important thing is that there's a neurophysiological consequence that we're not really aware of when it's a ping in our phone all the time. An addictive incitament. Look at the subway or in the bus or in, in the train station, everybody's sitting with their phone. And if uh, you sit in the coffee shop, if you find five youngsters in their 15 years or so, they sit in a sofa and everybody's sitting with their phone. They're not talking with each other. For them to socialize via Snapchat or or other media, it's the same thing as actually meeting. They really have a hard time making a discrepancy as far as I understand it. This gives us a rush to have instant satisfaction. Everything should happen right now. Bing, bing, bing. This takes away all the balance in life where you have time such as you and I have now to actually talk with each other. It's almost rare uh, I was very glad when you gave me this opportunity. I think most people are starving for an adult, honest conversation about things. Uh, so to the point that there's a market for two guys like you and I sitting <laughs> talking with each other. <laughs> yeah, Robert Lustig, who wrote about, uh, I don't remember the title exactly, but he, he is a never-endocrinologist, never and he is retired now, but he was a very prominent researcher, and he helped children with obesity and he's been doing a lot of lectures that's been seen by millions on the internet and he was talking about this that you know pleasure is something you do alone instant satisfaction with your phone but uh, happiness is something you do together 
uh, and we spend way, way, way too much time alone. And I mean, I, I said it in a sort of a comical context where, you know, we had social lockdown in Sweden way before the pandemic. I mean, we had 47% of our households are single person households. It's the most in the entire world. And we eat the most candy in the whole world as well as it happens. <laughs> we don't have uh, tools to actually make time to sit and speak with each other. Um, uh, if you went to the gym five or 10 years ago, and you went there regularly four times a week, there was at least a half an hour in the sauna where you could speak with Per Anders and Olav about the life of, of every day and the news and, and whatnot. And you had time for that. Today, people come to the gym, they've already changed their clothes and heaven forbid, they're not taking a shower at the gym because that takes time. So it's better to go home and do it at home. And while they're at the gym, they're still on their phone. So we sleep one hour less now than we did 10 years ago on a regular basis. So for sure, people don't have time to think. Is there a way out of this or are we just going down the drain, everyone? Everything is so possible. We have all these possibilities. So I think to turn it around, it's like if you're 20 today, everything is possible. But the second you choose to do something, you also choose not to do all the other things that you actually could do. So I think a lot of young people today, they, they wait to figure out what they should do. And then all of a sudden they are 30 and they haven't decided yet. Everything moves so fast nowadays that we are not biologically equipped for it really. So are you saying that the young people should have a plan earlier or, or think more about their life than just go with the flow? I think they are now. I mean, they have, they have not bought into that stuff which you and I was brought up with, you know, have a house, have a car, have a house loan, be a good employee, take care of your family. They're more thinking about why should I own a car uh, when I can rent one? I, I take the bus instead. Why should I have a house mortgage? If I save my money, I can stop working when I'm 40 and then I can be free. So, mm -hmm. so I, the younger uh, intellectual community they are more aware about what the costs are for doing the standard stereotypic life. And they are sort of looking into different ways of living their lives, uh, not getting a driver's license, not getting a car, buying secondhand clothes, living in a small flat, but travel a lot instead. Um, that wasn't really the case 30 years ago. You had this stereotypic idea of having a big house, one car per adult and two kids. and there was, it's still there somehow, but it's more fluent. So I think we should teach younger people more about the financial consequences of their choices uh, and w the exponential effects over time. If you do three things per day for a week, everybody gets that. Mm. But if you do three things a day for a whole year, that's 1,000 interventions to get you where you want to go if you do three things every yeah. day. And, 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 and this, I think, gets lost. I want to be a talk show host. I want to be an influencer on Instagram. Mm. I think young people should have support in that. And, and, and all of us, really. If you ask yourself, 
what the, are the three things I could do better? Everybody can answer that to themselves. So uh, for uh, anyone listening and thinking that we're covering a lot of stuff and you don't have time to listen to this once again, make sure to listen to the Insight episode I have one week after my interview with a guest where I kind of conclude what we've been talking about and my own thoughts about that. Don't miss it a week from now. We have talked a lot about very interesting subjects here, but I know that you are an expert in the field of overweight and diabetes and things like that. And it would be a general error from my point if I didn't ask you anything about that. I think that 90% of people are not satisfied with their weight. I've read that somewhere. I don't know if that's true. So I'll just leave that question open for you. Overweight, what's to say about that? Well, I was in uh, France six years ago. It was 40 degrees outside and very, very hot. And uh, one of our daughters uh, didn't really look that she coped so well with the heat. She was very lethargic. And I figured she was dehydrated and I found a camping car which had AC and I gave her some water. And then I came back after one hour, her respiratory rate was up to 30 per minute. And she was cold uh, on her arms and dehydrated. I, I guess subconsciously I understood that this is really not good, but I didn't really understand it intellectually. But I took her to the hospital and when we got there, she had extremely elevated blood sugars and her, her blood gases uh, was extremely deranged she had a ph on 6.9 so she was basically dying from uh, acute diabetes Be, being an uh, anesthetist i must say that that blood gas ph level was very bad so the listener understands sorry continue with your profession I, you get the contact she was completely uh out of order and um, we stayed in the hospital for a week and in honesty they they managed to turn this around without complications and we came to sweden we we got the the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes and she started treating with insulin this was a rocky ride as any parent or or diabetic know to say the least but the the correlation with obesity was that i i had to learn about this as a page as a parent and and it took me good three years to understand what what I didn't know. And then another two years to, to, to sort of master the basics so, so it worked out. But during this period, uh, insulin is a very potent hormone. And, and our daughter gained weight extensively. And the healthcare really didn't have any muscles to meet up in this regard. That's where my interest in this overweight dilemma started. I was getting 45, approaching 50, and not really looking at what I did when I was 30, and I was exercising like a moron. I couldn't get my regular shape back despite all the efforts I made. And then one of my colleagues developed the sleep apnea. He was a little bit overweight, and I wanted to be a good friend. We'd known each other for 20 years, so we went to Mallorca to, to bicycle, or to the Alps, sorry. And, and uh, on that uh, trip, he snored like, you know, I thought he was going to die 20 times a minute. 
and it it was a horrible experience and i i I recorded this because I have the greatest respect for him, and I still do. He's a brilliant colleague, but this had flown under the radar for some reason. I waited until we got back home. I thought about how to approach this. And I told him, and I told him, so I have this patient. He sent this recording to me, and he's wondering. And, and my colleague went berserk and said, this guy has sleep apnea. He really needs treatment. This is very dangerous. And I said, I know, because it's you. Oh, Oh, that uh, was uh, uh, that was clever and uh, wow! What did he say? When you're really good friends, you get away with that, but not otherwise. He got treatment. He's on a different spot today, and everything turned out well. But it could have gone really bad. So everybody who's listening, if you're snoring, and and your spouse is complaining, try to get the sleep apnea examination and see if you have this. Uh, desaturation of your blood during night because it's quite dangerous and many overweight patients they turn up as sleep apnea patients they gain a little bit weight and then all of a sudden they start to snore and then all hell breaks loose so so it was his his sleep apnea my daughter's diabetes and me turning towards 50 and i was sitting and struggling and i didn't understand how to 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 address this and I don't want to leave out too much of my daughter's integrity, but to, the circumstances with handling her insulin made me realize a lot of things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. So I, I pursued this and I approached patients who were overweight during the pandemic and I did uh, essays on their insulin curves and they were quite hyperinsulinemic, more than I expected. What is that? Well, insulin is a hormone that, that regulates our blood sugar. It's produced in the pancreas by beta cells. And, and most people understand diabetic, uh, but they don't know the difference between type 1 or type 2 or that there are even more types of diabetic in, in a common layman terms. So, so type 1 diabetics, they are autoimmune diabetics. They don't have any insulin. Their beta cells have given up. So they die if they don't have insulin. But if your mother or grandmother has diabetes, or elderly or type 2 diabetes, then you have insulin resistance. So those are two different diabetes, and they shouldn't be called type 1 and type 2. They should be called something else, but that's how it is now. Most people have a very big awareness that if your blood sugar is elevated, then you could have diabetes. But they are not aware about the fact that how much elevation is required from you in terms of your insulin levels to keep your blood sugar normal. People have no idea about this. And, and this is not something I found out. This has been known for decades. Uh, and the, the hyperinsulinemia or, or having too high insulin uh, is, is something which is totally missed by healthcare. Uh, and we don't treat that as a diagnosis. Um, but the thing is that if, if you take me, who, who, who are 50 plus now, and who exercise somewhat regularly and work daytime, and who don't have sleep apnea, and I stop eating today. And then I take my colleague, who is 30, who goes to the gym, who's a little bit buff, and everything is full throttle, and he stops eating the same day. And then we look in the evening, we check our ketones. Uh, ketones are, are, are a mirror image of, of your fat oxidation if you burn your fat reserves 
then my, my colleagues' ketone levels, they will be rocket riding up to, you know, 0.8 or 1.0 or more, and you will start to feel that I really should eat soon. Whereas my ketone levels were on 0.2. I thought, this is strange. He bailed out of this diet thing because he couldn't cope with more than 24 hours. Uh, he was starving. And he had 1.5 in ketones, so he was feeling pretty sick. So he started to eat. And second day, my ketones were up to 0.4. And I still hadn't eaten anything. And I found this puzzling. And, and it took me three days to reach the same ketone levels as my colleague. Hmm. Uh, this is why many people have a hard time losing their weight, is that they have insulin resistance. And why did it take so long time for me then? It's, they, to, to get your ins, elevated insulin levels to drop, you basically have to starve yourself for several days. Sure, you can eat food that doesn't elevate the insulin, but what many people don't realize that if you eat proteins, that elevates your insulin levels also. So many people start to think that if I stop eating carbohydrates, then I can eat all the meat I want. But uh, sure, that might be better than eating a lot of carbohydrates, but you still have elevation of insulin uh, due to protein intake. It's not in the same neighborhood, so I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an improvement, but still. So, so I started this combination with my weight, my colleague and my daughter, our daughter's uh, diabetes, and, and I, I couldn't let it go. And, and when I examined the insulin level of these the proof of concept patients, it was elevated on all of them. So we treated them to lower their insulin levels. And uh, lo and behold, I have two, two of my patients who lost 50 kilos in less than a year per person. Hmm. 100 pounds. And I thought that this is strange. Is it the placebo effect is now that, you know, they have the special treatment and the special doctor and now they go home and starve themselves. But there was... It wasn't about that. Uh, I had a third guy who was in his 60s. He was sort of in between jobs, almost ending in his career, uh, gained about 20 kilos, was very fit before and didn't really like the position he put himself in for, which was quite unclear how he got there. He liked food and he had a glass of wine from time to time, but that was not, not something which would explain that he had gained weight in this extent. And uh, he lost 20 kilos in less than nine months or less than a year. Hmm. He got back into the employment market. Um, and I, I got an approval from him to speak about this, I should say. Uh, he is very happy with this. And from my perspective, there are ways to gain obesity. I mean, I weighed 118 kilos when I was in Solgransk and doing night shifts in the emergency staying and eating coffee and, and uh, all kinds, drinking coffee and eating things I shouldn't. And I gained weight. But also if you work night shifts, your insulin levels peaked your, twice the normal level after you've been working a night shift. Most people don't know this.
to make a, a conclusion for someone who thinks this is really getting very medicalized. I don't understand uh, yeah. Yoda or what you're saying. Uh, one could say that what we hear is usually diabetes and it's good to have insulin. But what you're saying is that too high levels of insulin could actually make you gain weight. Therefore, you're actually looking at the insulin levels uh, as uh, a means of losing weight. Would that be a good conclusion? Yeah. Yeah, so, so many people walk around with too high insulin uh, production and, and that makes them gain weight. When they gain weight, they start to snore. When they snore, they have stress during the night. Their stress hormones are elevated. And when that happens, the, the liver release a lot of sugar in terms of glycogen. Then your insulin levels go up even more. And then it's just around and around and around. And you know what? You can buy all the gym cards you want. You can eat all the, the, the vegetables you want. There's no science, to my knowledge, that says that if you are on diet and exercise, you will lose your overweight. I mean, everybody who's tried knows that this is not right. Mm. It doesn't work. I rode 6,000 kilometers on my bike in one year. Mm. I was very fit, but I didn't lose weight. <laughs> That's why they say that muscles uh, weigh more than, than fat, but actually it's not that much more, is it? It's not a diet problem. It's not an exercise problem. It's a hormonal problem. Mm. So you're saying that the people are having too high levels of insulin, but why do they have that? Is it because they eat? A lot of sugar and they didn't get diabetes but the the constant sugary intake makes insulin yes. getting higher or is it just genetic you think that some are actually born with oh i mean look insulin? at the weight in our population i mean uh, 20 years ago a regular man weighed 75 kilos now he weighs 90 95. i mean you can't explain that with genetics in two decades mm. it's impossible uh it might be very convenient to say that it's genetic but the truth of the matter is that we have a society where we eat all the time. There's fast food available everywhere. You can't even go to the gas station without eating. And we have this idea that we should eat all the time. And we have this Swedish expression, kraftig benstomme. Fika. <laughs> no, ja. fika, but we have the kraftig benstomme too. Ja. Ja. <laughs> Makes you yeah, heavy. Yeah. I have a strong skeleton of sorts, uh, <laughs> roughly translated, yes. No, so, so we eat more than we should. We eat more often than we should, and we don't sleep as much as we should. Uh, and we stress more than we should, and we don't exercise. I'm not saying that hormones makes you fat. But what I am saying is that if you have some part of your life, bad habits, so you end up eating pizza every night, and, you know, most people, they work in food deserts. There's no place to go and buy two fresh avocados and some healthy groceries. Everything is ready-made. You have, I'm sitting right now, actually, uh, at the gas station, and I'm looking at Pizza Hut, Chop Shop, and uh, Circle K. I mean, and, and they don't really have any uh, natural ingredients. If you get the banana or an apple, it is your lucky. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, that's, that's, but you know what I'm talking about. Mm. I'm not blaming people. I'm saying that, you know, if you work in an industrialized area, you're working in a car park or whatnot, or if you're sitting in a big office complex downtown, this is what is available for you when there's lunch. Mm. And most people don't have time to sit and fiddle around with how to eat properly. They mm. eat what is in front of them. We all do. Mm. I mean, there are some people bring their lunchbox 
but that's still the we eat too often we eat more than we should and Swedish people in particular have the highest intake of candy per person per year in the whole world. We eat more than 20 kilos of candy every year per person. You, you say that we have high levels of insulin and, and you have patients who actually lost 100 pounds each. But each. Yes. How, how do you treat them? Do you give anti-insulin? What no, is no the, the, thing is that, the thing is that first you have to figure out that they actually are insulin resistant. In order to do that, you have to, to make tests and glucose loads and measure insulin levels over several hours. And that takes a lot of staff and resources to, to, to get that. And also, hormones are not a, a steady state problem. You know, if you come for blood tests and you're not properly prepared, your hormone levels will be completely unrepresentative. So you have to be able to repeat and reproduce the blood test so you can actually say that this patient is hyperinsulinemic, and but it doesn't have diabetes. If you do an oral glucose tolerance test, as you do on a pregnant woman, and you have uh, blood sugar over 12.2 after two hours, you are in a diabetic state. But if you have blood sugar 8.9, you are not a diabetic, hmm. but you still have elevated blood sugar. And all, I would say if you take 10 people on the street and do this, you would find that at least uh, six of them have some, some level of insulin resistance. Mm. There's 100 million pre-diabetic patients in the U.S. Mm. And the, the thing is that once you gain weight, you get some visceral fat, you get a belly, but you also get liver steatosis. Your liver becomes yeah, inflamed and uh, you get fat depositions in your liver. I mean, the biggest common reason for liver transplantation in the U.S. today is liver steatosis due to not alcohol, mm. but to, to bad diet. Mm. I wrote in my book that uh, obesity is pro-inflammatory, and someone actually said that that's not proven. What are your thoughts on that? Is, is obesity a pro-inflammatory state? You can take one of the most aggressive inflammatory diseases known to man, rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune inflammatory disease where your joints basically corrodes and it's very painful. Patients who are overweight and change their diet and, and get rid of their overweight with these kind of conditions, they can completely alleviate uh, many of their uh, inflammatory problems to a large extent by just losing weight and losing the amount of inflammation in their body by losing weight. Mm. I'm not a researcher in, in adipose inflammatory processes. So I shouldn't put my, my money where my mouth is. But this is uh, what I see in a clinical context. Mm. And a lot of my obese patients, they have inflammatory states with muscle aches and joint pains of the load, if nothing else. And to change from 130 kilos to 80 kilos in a year, half your body weight disappears. I found it very compelling to actually help people not getting sick. Mm. So that's why my business was called proactive health. Mm. So I try to do things, maybe from impression from my daughter's diabetes, if I can help people not getting sick, 
I think if if I have this knowledge, I also have this responsibility. And then uh, it's been reproducible now for a year, and we're starting to treat patients in January. We're being uh, able to to receive patients in in Stockholm in, from January. I will work there every other week and uh, try to help our patients lose weight by helping them with hormonal levels. And I find it it wasn't what I expected my my medical uh, career to to end up, but now I feel almost like when I started medical school, I'm so enthusiastic mm. because I didn't really expect that those interventions made such a big difference. I mean, for these women, they shared with me very personal stories about what it has meant, how they are perceived by their, their surroundings, what it has done to their self-esteem, their psychological uh, everyday situation at work and so on. It's, it's a huge game changer to help people uh, to get their life back, basically. So how do you treat them if they're uh, correctly diagnosed? Do you give them injections with hormones? What happens at your clinic? Well, well modern diabetes medications can help patients lower their insulin levels. And the problem is that we give them to diabetics when it's too late. So if, if you treat people with, with regular diabetes medications who, who, who don't have diabetes but who have hyperinsulinemia, you, you help them to reverse this condition before they have it. Hmm. But then you have to educate them. There are so many misconceptions about why I am overweight and what I should do about it and why I become like this. So it's a relief for them when they get a, a hormonal explanation. Look, your hormones are really fucked up. We're going to help you with that. Here is a regular curve. Here is your curve. And now we're going to, to give you medications and, and lower this. When your insulin levels go down, your leptin, your satiety hormone starts to work again. So you right. don't eat as much. When your insulin levels go down, your lipos, your, your, your enzymes that actually burns your adipose tissue starts to work again and this is not something i found out this is in any textbook it's basic knowledge since more than 50 years ago okay leptin you found out in the 80s but i mean it, it's not rocket science it's just that we're so preoccupied with blaming ourselves about how we're looking i should exercise more i mean who haven't said that <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, it sounds like uh, uh, you might get another patient from the other side of the pod <laughs> here. I'll, I'll sign up after we close this. Well, week. I mean, all doctors who work night shifts are in, in risk of developing overweight. And, and, and with the stress and the responsibility with respiratory arrest and cardiac arrest and what you say in anesthesiology, hours of boredom and seconds of terror, <laughs> yeah, 95% yeah. boredom and 5% panic. So that's the story behind the, the, the obesity program. And for those who are interested, they can look on proactivehelsa.se, I think it comes in English, if they want to know more. These different types of diets like LCHF, people said that you shouldn't eat sugar, you should eat fat instead, uh, mm. just to make it easy. And then uh, that part that didn't like LCHF said that, well, it might be a short-term gain, but it's actually dangerous for the long-term health. Mm. Honestly, do you think that your 
uh, treatments can have any long-term side effects? I don't know yet. Now I know that it works. But the, the second question becomes, do you need medications the rest of your life? What happens with doing tests now to see if we've reverted the insulin resistance and can these patients get off their meds when they've lost their weight? Uh, I haven't seen anything published on that. So I have to do more studies. Um, but uh, I try to stay in a clinical context where the patients are participating with full awareness about what's going on. It might sound like overwhelming when we speak about it on the podcast, but it's really not that hard to explain once you sit down uh, for 30 minutes how it, how it, things are uh, working out. I know that study, they saw elevation of cholesterol and triglycerides in patients who had a very high LCHF diet and all these diet questions I have not touched at all. You eat what you like to eat. Just do me a favor and stay away from candy and have the insight that if you eat carbohydrates together with fat, you're going to elevate your insulin levels extensively. If you have mashed potatoes, you know, mm. uh, there's nothing else that will elevate your blood sugar as much as mashed potatoes, I'm telling you. It's, uh, I mean, if you stop with a diabetic child who is five years old and you're in the restaurant and there, everything is available is meatballs and mashed potatoes on the menu, uh, and, and you try to figure out how to, to dose insulin for those mashed potatoes, good luck. It's a total disaster. It's very tasty. But Jesus, so a lot of fat and carbohydrates will keep your insulin levels up for 12, 24 hours. Hmm. And so people can eat whatever they want. I, I am not a diet guy. Okay. I think it's better that we eat real food and then you eat what you like. I found that when I treated the insulin levels in our patients, their behavior changed hmm. by itself. As I expected, because anyone who, who has a, been a parent or, or, or is in a diabetic who, who takes insulin or gives their child insulin, realize that insulin is an appetite-driving agent. So, yeah. I mean, everybody who gets on insulin who are type 2 diabetic gain 10 kilos in one year, like that. Mm. And now there's modern medications who help us treat diabetes before they get sick. So why don't we move the yardstick a little bit and treat people before they get diabetes? Yeah. That's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. But you have to know that these are very potent drugs. It's not something you can just go to your GP and say, you know, I should, I want to have these drugs because I am 10 kilos overweight. The side effects can be grueling if you don't know what you're doing. It's not something you can eat like a regular blood pressure medication. You really need to stay on top of these patients because you can have side effects from cascade vomiting, uh, uh, severe secretory diarrhea, uh, and all kinds of things that would... So you have to, you have to really know what you're doing. And I, I've learned by being very meticulous. There are patients who are obese but have normal insulin levels. But they are not that many, but you have to medically verify 
that there is a hyperinsulinemia before you start treating it. Otherwise, it, uh, you're really out in the forest. I mean, everybody looks for a quick fix. The easiest thing I've seen is that you can swallow a balloon and the doctor's office uh, under some anesthesia, of course. And then you can have a balloon in your stomach for about six months and then you lose weight. Yeah. And actually, you're doing it in a very good way in the sense that you really read uh, all the material out there you have the basic knowledge and then you turn mm -hmm. it into uh, something practical and a, actually a, a new way of thinking we won't dwell into that but i know that you were quite early in uh, the corona business where you actually uh, had patients where the guidelines hadn't been updated but you were a quick learner you learned what happened around the world and actually started treating people like we now know that everyone does and you were a little bit before other guys doing that yeah we published uh, to me and my co-authors we published uh, an article in uh, pharmacology uh, in january i think it's why we wrote a literary review i went through between 90 100 papers on cyclansonid an inhalation steroid and the covid19 infections the background to that was that I got sick myself mm. and uh, I had children with asthma and uh, diabetes. So I was very concerned about their well-being. So I tried to read up on the subject and, uh, you know, it takes about 15 years for science to become practical medicine. There is a delay between when you actually know that something works and it becomes a national guideline, let's say. Sometimes it's quicker when you have, the, I mean, with, with the vaccination and the pandemic, it's a completely different system. Well, Michel, I, I started with, you know, listing all the things that I knew that, that you knew. And uh, that kind of reflects in, in this uh, episode because we talked about parenting. We have been talking about the philosophers. We've talked about uh, diabetes and overweight. And we talked about COVID-19. Wow. This has been such an interesting episode for me as well. I really thank you for wanting to be one of my guests. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Okay, so take care now and, and keep mm -hmm. your weight, okay? Yeah. <laughs> be well. You too. Take care, Captain. Yeah. Bye. Ciao.